Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. DNA has long been used to identify human remains, no less at the identification lab operated by the Defense POW-MIA Accounting Agency. Now some new scientific methods have emerged called next-gen sequencing. With what that is and how it helps, we turn to the DNA Operations Director at the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, Tim McMahon. Dr. McMahon, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Tom. And just what is the connection between the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, where you run the DNA operations, and the POW-MIA Accounting Agency? So the connection is a partnership, and this partnership goes back to 1991. The DPAA, or the Defense POWMI Accounting Agency and its predecessors, have been around since going back to 1972 when they were the Central Identification Lab in Thailand and in Vietnam recovering. And in 1984, geopolitical thaw between President Reagan and Vietnam, Vietnam unilaterally turned over some unknown service members from Vietnam. In 1991, with the advancements progressing into DNA technology, basically our ability to Xerox copy DNA, so to make millions and millions of copies, which was developed in 1987, that allowed DNA to transition into the forensic field for human remains identification. In 1991, we used what was called mitochondrial DNA, and this is DNA that comes from your mother, so we can trace you back through your maternal side we were able to assist in the identification of a Vietnam unknown. Additionally, in 1991, at the end of Operation Desert Storm, there were a number of U.S. service members who could not be identified, and DNA had to be used to identify those. So basically, 1991 is what solidified DNA to be used in both current day operations and to assist with the identification of our past accounting service members. Within DOD, the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System is mandated to determine the cause and manner of death of any service member in a current theater of operation. This includes our highly talented doctors, the forensic pathologists, our medical legal death investigators. Our Division of Forensic Toxicology determines if there's a toxicological, and then there's the DNA lab or the Armed Forces DNA Identification Lab. So when you think about DNA... And you look back at World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, DNA wasn't even thought about or identified until 1953 when the armistice for Korea was signed. Our ability to Google translate DNA, that is to sequence DNA and determine how it reads, really didn't come about until 1976, so at the end of the Vietnam conflict. So we don't have any direct references, meaning that service member who died, I don't have a direct reference. But in 1992, we started collecting a DNA blood reference card for all active duty reserve and National Guard service members. And because of that, from Operation Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom, there are no unknown military service members. So therefore, you don't need reference DNA from someone's family member, their mother or close relative. You can identify it in the DNA itself. Absolutely. So... For example, Tom, if you were a service member, I would have your card. If you passed away, I could pull that card and I have a direct reference. You transitioned into the next part, which is a great thing, is to assist. So the Defense POW MI Accounting Agency is its own agency. They are mandated with the recovery 
and identification of all of our World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Cold War, and El Dorado Canyon, which is the bombing of Libya, the missing from those wars. To do that, for us to support them, we do all of the DNA testing for human remains for all of DOD. So the DPAA will go and recover remains from World War II. They can go into Papua New Guinea. They can recover a downed airplane. They will then take it to their laboratories where they do their forensics anthropology, the forensics odontology, which is a big word for looking at dental, the teeth, and they will look at stature and things like that. We're speaking with Dr. Tim McMahon. He's director of DNA operations at the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. So there's this something coming in new, next-gen sequencing. Can this help with some of the very old remains where it's pretty safe to say there are no relatives living anymore? Yes, the next-generation sequencing is actually twofold. We developed the first method for forensics in 2016, and it was designed to work with what we call chemically treated samples. So at the end of the Korean War, there were about 4,000 sets of remains turned over to the United States. About 862 of those could not be identified. They wanted to preserve them to keep our heroes in the best state. So they embalmed them. Well, we know now that that's the worst you could do to DNA. It took us 16 years in science to catch up, and we were able to do next-generation sequencing. But that was just a sequence of the mitochondrial genome. What do we do when we have a service member? The only living relative is a paternal niece. So through the service member's brother, the niece. That doesn't have any current testing method for it. So we have developed what we call a single nucleotide polymorphism test. If you're following the news, it's basically the same thing that Ancestry.com and 23andMe do and that investigative genetic genealogy. But we made it to work with highly degraded DNA. And so that now will allow us to assist with the identification of individuals who previously did not have what we call a viable family reference. The other option, potentially, if if it works down and we find out that the missing service member was adopted, then we may be able to use the genetic DNA sequence, we call it, from the bone to potentially search one of the searchable databases and have a genealogist help us find a viable reference. Is there a large inventory, therefore, of missing but found service members that are unidentified that are either embalmed, as you mentioned, there are still some of them, I suppose, and then what about new ones that might come in which you would not embalm, but if it's from the Vietnam or World War II, there's nothing to embalm. It would be right. bones. So we work typically in bones on our past accounting side, and that's to support the DPAA or Defense PWMI Accounting Agency. There are, if you look across the wars, there were about 72,000 missing from World War II. The DPAA thinks that there's about 36 to 38,000 of those that are recoverable. And then there were initially 8,100 missing from Korea. We're down to about 7,500. We've identified over 600. And then Vietnam, we're at about 1,500 that need to be recovered and identified. So to answer your question, inherently, if they go into a country and find them where they crashed or died, even though those bones have been in the field for 60, 70, 80 years, we actually have methods that make them work very well. To answer your question about are there remains in the lab, we are always working new cases. 
through either recoveries, the DPA going out and doing field recoveries, or they will disinter unknowns from American Battle Monument cemeteries. For example, the Cabanatuan prison camp from World War II in the Philippines. In a 48-hour period, the Japanese allowed the prisoners of war, anyone who died, to bury everyone in one grave. So there's a thousand graves there with multiple people. So we're working to disinter and ID those. The tests that we do, we report out about 300 tests a month. We're looking to do close to 4,000 of those a year. And that led to supporting 162 new identifications last year. So this is really painstaking work, isn't it? It is. Unlike your state and local crime lab or my current day operation lab, where we have such fresh new samples and there we process it once. We take the unknown sample, we do the short tandem repeat test, we take the card, we do it, they match, you're done. Because of the damage, we actually have to do everything in duplicates. So different scientists do it, the two answers have to match, and then we will search our database. That's an important aspect is since 1992, with the help of our service casualty offices for Army, Air Force, Navy, and Marines, they're the belly buttons to the families. They've actually collected family references for us, and we've created this database. So for the original 8,100 missing from the Korean War, I have references for 92% of those. That's why we can support those identifications. Wow. So the World War II ones could remain then forever unknown because there's just no cross-reference. Well, that's really one of the biggest misconceptions out there. Set us right. Um, yeah. So you would think about that when you hear in the news, the greatest generation, World War, you know, the World War II, we're losing a number of vets per day. But because we use lineage markers, meaning that, Tom, if you were missing and you had a brother, a sister, or your maternal aunt had kids, I can use them as references to help assist in the identification of you. And so we can go back. The, the farthest I've ever seen that we made an ID with, is with a great, 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 great. So a seven great niece to a Vietnam unknown. So we believe it or not. There's been that been enough generations in that family to have such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. They marry um, young in that family. <laughs> exactly. But let's take Tarawa, for instance. The Battle of Tarawa, there are a little over, and, and my numbers are close, a little over 489 missing Marines. For those 489 missing Marines, I have references currently on hand for 85% of them. So the reason is, is it's kind of like your toolbox. You know, when I go into my toolbox, I have seven or eight different size screwdrivers because the screws are all different size. So the more screwdrivers I have, the more successful I'm going to be in fixing what I need to do. So for us, we utilize every DNA test that's available as well as develop our new ones. And that gives us the breadth of the ability to use multiple lines of references. And it comes down to when you think about criminal forensics, you're asking who against the world's population committed that crime. So you need that direct reference. But when you're dealing with a missing persons like we are, we can utilize lineage markers. We can utilize SNPs. We can utilize everything. And that opens up the pool of references for us. Right. So the essential new development in recent times then is the ability to identify someone from other than their mother's DNA, basically. Right. The, the beauty of it is the test that we did, that new test you're talking about, that turns 
every reference that I've collected since 1992 into a nuclear reference. So it doesn't invalidate the mother's reference that I collected back in 1992. I don't have to go out and get a new reference. I get to use her still to identify her missing son. And so that's the beauty of it is, is we don't have to go out and recollect all of our references. The new method allows us to use all the references we already collected, but just in multiple forms now. And when doing this type of work, I imagine it occurs to you and the people you work with and the people that work in your division consider this sacred work. We do. And I'll give you an idea. So, Tom, we have to work in the blind, we call it. So we don't want to have any cognitive bias. So when a sample comes to us, it comes in with a unique case number. However, when that individual is identified, that service member is identified, we actually put the identification notice on our board in our hallway, and we have a big United States map. And then a pin goes in that service member's hometown. So they may come in unknown, but they leave as an identified hero. And that's how we tie our people to the mission. And they love it. It's sacred for them to do that. Tim McMahon is director of the DNA operations at the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, 
it's been six months in the making and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had 
gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, "Okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions 
expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.